0: You're listening to Who's That?, a podcast where we look at how we manage our data online, keeping it private and secure, and what it means to be anonymous or whether or not it's possible in the first place. This podcast is brought to you by Anon, a creative, anonymous, and conscious social network, and Storm, a podcast studio. I'm Andrew Freeberg, and as it so happens... I spend most of my time as an artist and as a theater director. That means that I spend far too much time thinking about what it means for an artist to exist in the public space. What's your style? What are your politics? And how do you get people to come see what you're doing in the first place? So you'd probably think that the last thing an artist would want is anonymity. But then you've got your digital artists with their pseudonyms, your Banksies who want to hide their identities from society, the police from their rabid fans... And of course, the ones who are bidding millions upon millions of dollars for works like these that they don't want the tax man to hear about. Our guest today is Nico Epstein, an art industry advisor who's been involved in the art world, online and offline, for the past 10 years. He's the director of Artvisor, an innovative art advisory firm and online platform that just launched its own mobile app. Nico also designed the course, The Online Art Market, An Essential Guide, for Christie's education, and works as an art advisor for the Freeze Art Fair franchise. So, Nico, as we're doing this interview, you just returned from Art Basel, a privately owned and managed international art fair staged annually in Basel, Miami Beach, Hong Kong, and Paris. But what I was wondering... Uh, was whether or not you've noticed at these big art fairs and even at online auctions, a trend towards artists hiding behind pseudonyms or taking their names off the artworks completely.
1: In in all honesty, if I'm looking at the material that's shown at Freeze uh, or or Basel, where I was last month, or, or any of these other what you've described as traditional art fairs, I haven't really seen a tendency towards anonymity or towards using pseudonyms or if a collective is using um, pseudonyms, then they're not anonymous because the individuals that are behind that brand are fully uh, acknowledged to be named named individuals. So when I'm looking at my, um, my own work as an advisor and with, within that specific context, I haven't seen any sort of noticeable shifts towards artists who are trying to remain anonymous or towards different pseudonyms. But I, I, I will ima- I imagine that at um, NFT NYC, there was a whole plethora of different names and different uh, brands that were anonymous and that were making art as well. So I think that world is very different from the the art world in which I operate in personally.
0: I wonder then, I mean, would you say that the, the art world that you work in, right? I won't call it traditional, but let's say physical, right? Tangible. Would you say that the, it's the force of that personality? It's the force of the artist, right? That name that's really driving things more so than the work?
1: I, I think in many cases, people are drawn towards certain names as marquee brands. And if you look at the names that appear at auction, Mm -hmm. the top 100 names historically, Picasso, Warhol, Basquiat, these types of trophy uh, artists, they appear over time. And if people don't necessarily have an art historical understanding of the, the practice of these artists, they're still drawn to them because of the name. But obviously, it's not just the name in itself. It's the associated style. It's the status. It's the degree of recognizability that you have from owning one of these names. Now, if I look at, let's say, contemporary anonymous artists that appear at auction, the only one that I can think of, who, again, I imagine will speak about a lot during this interview, is Banksy, because Banksy is anonymous, but he's also a name. So his reputation is contingent both on his practice but also his brand and his marketability uh, as an anonymous individual.
0: You know what I'm thinking to myself right is that you might not know right you might not know the personal identity you might even not know you might not even know the artist but you do know that the brand that is that style right you made a great point about the those blue chip artists even if you don't know the name like the non collector the non savant would know that's a Basquiat, that's a Picasso, with some degree of likelihood.
1: The physical and and tactile art world has uh, a degree of dependability on on how recognizable a certain name is, and that drives its marketing. And that's not just true for artists, but it's also true for the stakeholders behind them. Larry Gagosian is a famous name. Having that name behind you is significant from a marketing perspective, from a pricing perspective, from the connections that it gives you to auction houses, to um, to museums, and so on. There aren't many galleries that I can think of that are anonymous in terms of the owners. One of them that, that comes to mind is Rita Spallings, which is actually a collective in, in the Lower East Side. This is a very random example, but they've created a, um, a collective identity by which they can create works under the auspices of being a group of people as opposed to a single individual. And even within this, um, this is very nerdy, but within this sort of network of pseudonymous artists, they've then created another artist whose name is Henry Kodaks. We don't know who, who, who he is, but he's affiliated with the, the, the Rina Spallings family. So the difference between the the collective anonymous artists today, is that they will themselves to be an anonymous or pseudonymous group of individuals, a group of artists, yeah. practitioners who are operating under a certain name. Time makes people anonymous. And sometimes it does so in a way which affects their, their market drastically. Somebody could be a famous artist, but then decades, centuries later, he's relegated to circle of Caravaggio, workshop of Peter Paul Rubens, because their work didn't stand up to the test of time or was forgotten, and their place in history is is very different than recognizable artists like Michelangelo, who managed to not stay anonymous. There's a market variability when it comes to the labeling of artists from the Baroque and Renaissance period. You could be described as a a Roman artist working in the ambit of Caravaggio. And if you're working in the ambit or the circle or the the workshop of that artist, then this form of anonymity is very different than being a Banksy, for example, because Banksy chose to be anonymous, whereas these artists, they've been relegated to anonymity because of the whims of time. And... Within that, this this form of anonymous artistry has a very important caveat to it, which is that if you're in the ambit of Caravaggio, people who are buying your work could be buying you because they expect you to be Caravaggio, because they expect the artist to be a more famous artist. So that form of anonymity which we can frame as being an associative anonymity or a semi-anonymity because you're known to at least have one part of your your persona exposed, this is very different than being purposefully anonymous. It's also different than being uh, known as, for example, the master of the Fiesole Epiphany, who isn't necessarily affiliated directly with a Renaissance artist, but his marketing uh, or their marketing, because it could be a woman, in catalog essays is done in comparison to Girolandayo. So it's done in comparison to a famous artist, even though they're not necessarily in the circle of that artist. And this form of anonymity is based upon being affiliated with a certain painting that you've done. So in the past, we had artists who had names, but they became anonymous. And today we have artists who are becoming anonymous by using different names and by branding themselves differently, but this is a relatively new phenomenon. And I would also argue that this is, um, as a trend, has has picked up steam as a result of NFTs and the internet as a space that fosters a sense of anonymity, um, even though there are, of course, many privacy concerns when it comes to, to operating online.
0: What I, the, the thing that comes to mind immediately for me is thinking, okay, right, the cult of personality, that has a very short shelf or it, it could have a very short half-life, right? It could decay really quickly. But then to think about, to, to make that move towards, take that turn towards conscious anonymity, you're kind of immediately foregrounding the work itself. And then you're, it's like you're cheating progress, you're cheating time. You know, the last thing I would think about here is, again, to come back to Banksy, that try to hide that data, that try to hide that sort of personal factor as an artistic statement, as part of their practice.
1: There are artists who we work with personally that we meet with their agent or my business partner meets with their agent. One of them is is Tom Poet, and he creates these incredible pen drawings that resemble Bruegel or old master sketches that are done with with an incredibly virtuistic technical draftsmanship. And we don't know who he is. And the reason that he decides to remain anonymous is exactly because of the points that you just described, where he doesn't want his own personality, their own personality, or their celebrification, or their biography, or, or their personal interests to get in the way of the celebration of his ability as an artist. The flip side side of the coin is uh, an over-reliance on certain proclivities that have to do with the creation of artworks, which then lead to market trends. Because of the political spectrum that we operate in, a lot of these artists come into the limelight, not necessarily as a result of the physical quality of the work, but as a result of the way in which their brand has been positioned within the constructs of market trends. So they're relying not necessarily on the physical quality of their work, but on sort of political forms of, 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 of introspection and, and, and dynamism. It doesn't necessarily take away from the quality of the work itself, but people have to be away, aware of the sort of market forces uh, uh, trend. Uh, as an artist, being anonymous is entirely different. It's is very difficult. For, for all of the reasons we've discussed, if you're entirely anonymous as an individual, you don't necessarily have the, the marketing team, the personality. You're having to let the work itself, the work speak for itself. And only very few artists can let the work speak for itself without having to engage in the form of social dynamics, dinner parties, online marketing and everything that depends on the, the, the facial characteristics is showing the face that the individual artists themselves. And when you have the individual artist playing too much of a role within their work, then it diminishes the, the the physical and tangible attributes of the work itself. So it's sort of like a catch-22. You want to let the work speak for yourself, but you can't be anonymous and then profit within the current ecosystem. How do you navigate that dynamic? That's a tough question.
0: We uh, I was looking at your Instagram. Among the the art travels, um, <laughs> and I would characterize it as maybe a little bit of nostalgia, even yeah, for yeah. like the the museum world, the the experience, of just plopping down on that bench and enjoying it. I was looking at this great post um, from last year. Uh, it's 2011, and I'm somewhere in Italy. Uh, it was <laughs> right, right. Uh, anyway, I want to come back to this post because you're talking about the the intersection of not just art and commerce, but um, art and e-commerce. This idea of like capitalism of market forces breeding innovation. I wonder as we see the shift to from physical, from tangible commerce to e-commerce, what has that done in terms of facilitating, creating, changing qualitatively or quantitatively that innovation process, that artistic, maybe I'd hazard to call it the iter- the iterative process.
1: I'm a traditionalist, but I'm a traditionalist who recognizes that transformative nature of the internet and the way in which Web3, IoT, VR, AR, blockchain, and all these technologies are coming. But I see... I see these technologies as a necessary step and a necessary extension. And unlike many people, I don't necessarily see digital technologies and e-commerce as a replacement for the, the, the physical forms of transaction that take place in the art market. But I do see them as a, as a necessary uh, extension when it comes to e-commerce and, and when it comes to the, the, the art market commerce more broadly speaking. So me discussing the evolution uh, of the art market in the past 10 years is part of my conscious positioning as as, uh, an, an individual in the space who is engaged with both the influx of commercial capitalism from a digital angle, but also the old guard movement of the art market, which is a traditional business that's networked um, from personal connections and less so from online ones. That's changing. And the point that I was trying to make there in 2011 is that when I was talking about building an e-commerce platform, no one, no one, no one cared. What e-commerce, how is that going to work? That's going to diminish the uh, that's going to diminish the value of the art that doesn't, you know, e-commerce is a crass form of, of, uh, of, of business it's transactionary to, to, um, to a derogatory extent it's a, you know it's it's terrible right fast forward to today i get asked about nfts every single day of my life without exception <laughs> every conversation i have as as soon, as soon as soon as as soon as i say i'm an art advisor or or i'm a curator the first question i get asked is what do you think about nfts and it's not even <laughs> it's not even like a well-framed question how, how how do you how do you answer that? Yeah, do, right, do, do you, do you t- right. Do you talk about the, the the narrative behind digital versus physical? Do you talk about who the hot NFT artists are and whether or not I like them? You know, there's there's so many different ways that this question can be approached. I wanted to set the record straight here by mentioning the thing that I constantly say, which is that. Not all NFTs are artworks. People think that Bored Apes are are an artwork. I would argue that they're a token. I would argue that they're a token that has a utilitarian function and buys you membership into a community. In a more metaphorical sense, you could argue that buying a Jeff Koons affords you membership in, into an alter-rich community. <laughs>
0: but, Especially that it's a collective work. It's the Jeff Koons studio. Co- How much is he actually doing?
1: Correct, correct, correct. In the same sense that it's Larva Labs or, 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 or Yuga, it's these companies that are creating bigger studios that are creating these, these NFTs. Right. But the, the main difference is that the NFT, even if it has a JPEG attached to it, you're basically owning the rights to the JPEG. You're not owning the, the JPEG itself. One and two. This token allows you to gain access to a number of different forms of community gatherings, di- gallery uh, gatherings, different forms of access to different drops, and it's all done through a digital system. So the utilitarian function of owning a token is fundamentally different than the capacity of an individual to own a physical artwork. And that's the main differentiator. My bigger concern is the way in which artists are making work that's designed to sell online. So when we're talking about e-commerce and art becoming e-commerce, it's not that art is becoming uh, e-commerce itself, it's that art that's being made is being made to sell online. And that's a much bigger issue because uh, it, it, it taps into the creative capacity of, of different makers and it forces them to change according to different whims of the market. And those whims are being dictated through OpenSea or through Platform or through Avondart or through all of these uh, d- different online platforms. This started a long time ago, and one of the quotes that I like to read from my course is by an artist, former artist named Artie Vierkant, and in 2010, he wrote a very famous essay called The Image Object Post-Internet. In this uh, essay- A
0: little bit of Benjamin in there. Yeah,
1: exactly. Very good, very good. Exactly, exactly. In this essay, one of the things he says is that his ambition is to create projects which moves seamlessly from physical representation to internet representation, either changing for each context, built with an intention of universality, or created with a deliberate irreverence for either venue of transmission. And what what I take this to mean is that she recognizes the internet as a medium to sell art. So the the internet is this, this place of anonymous browsing, right? But it's also a place where Artists are creating works that are branded of their own accord and they're made to be part of this anonymous browsing super system where they're being absorbed by the, the market capitalism that dictates online transactions and that dictates the sale of different consumer goods. And what's interesting to me is the, the transference of artworks into the digital uh results in very standardized positioning on the screen, which is analogous to the way that you would shop for vegetables. You look at a grid, the grid is, is the way, you know, Op- Op- OpenSea, Christie's Auction House, Phillips Auction House, whatever website you're looking at, you see three or four squares going across the screen. You see three or four s- squares of shoes going across the screen in Farfetch. There's a whole other cottage industry of apps like Planoly and uh, th- these these different uh, sub-apps that are allowing you to curate your grid of art photos on, on Instagram, which is trying to make you into an artist. So, so this, the celebrification of the individual knows no boundaries, and marketers are using celebrity um, as part of the grid, um, as part of this whole superstructure. To bring you further in, into your sort of solipsistic indulgence of of looking at photos in order to keep you hooked to your machine, right? This is this is this is the problem. This is the problem. Whether or not you're anonymous, or whether or not you're an artist who's part of the capitalist system, you're still being subservient to market capitalism as it exists from the part of Meta and. Apple and and these conglomerates that are that are controlling and listening to what we're saying. All, all of these forms of standardization is a result of our subservience to a form of of um, total homogenization of market capitalism. We are looking at what the market dictates us to look at. and as a result, the artists that are recognizing this, whether or not they're anonymous, are positioning their their goods, their services, their performances, maybe their, their, their physical goods in a way that's being displayed um, to 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 Kowtow to that particular aspect of the way observership operates and the way in which the the popular viewership and the vernacular of today looks at certain objects. So these are all like my concern isn't art becoming e-commerce. It's, you know, art being made to be trafficked online. And unfortunately, the crypto culture has only proliferated this form of experience. So when I talk about these things in my class, I wanna give a well-rounded perspective. I don't wanna say I'm against digital art or I'm against NFTs or I'm against certain projects, but I do wanna voice my concern in how this particular culture that we're in has proliferated uh, a form of universality. And maybe being anonymous, um, allows you to, to join that that cultish display of, of, of works and to not necessarily feel bad that you're making the same art as everyone else.
0: You were talking about, so we're talking about participating, yeah, in this format, right? You're engaged, you're making it for the format. You're making it for the market. I feel like there's a, there's a necessary pushback though that artists have always made things for a market, right? You're making it for your Medici's. You're making it for your Gagosian's <laughs> and Zwirner's. You're making it for... You know, even like the brilliant graphic designers of the 20th century, like even someone, you know, I almost said Werner von Braun, but the Braun Company, um, <laughs> Werner von Braun had an audience too. The Braun Company making those genius, right? Beautiful German industrial designs or the Saul Bass logos. Yeah, you're making it for the tail of a plane and it becomes the most, you know, one of the most recognizable symbols in the world. And then I wanna go back to the idea of the activist art that you were talking about. It's a separate question, obviously, to talk about the longevity of your, your activist art, right? Will it stand the test of time? But I wanna move pa- I wanna move back to the, the the question of these artists specifically um, playing to the form because arguably they're activists too. They're pushing crypto, they're pushing NFTs, they're pushing tokens in a way that like I would argue that many artists that I see from, I mean, people I know to people that we only hear about, right? Your, your, your kitties and your apes, they want this form to succeed.
1: Yeah. But do they want this form to succeed or they're just after a quick buck? I mean, and, and also are we, what's the difference? Well, the difference, let let me, let me put it this way. So to answer, to try and get to the first part of your question, the major difference between playing to the form today and playing to the form 50 years ago is that, The instantaneity of digital media has made people getting rich quickly as the the end goal for a lot of people. The fact that everyone notices that everybody else is getting rich quickly leads to a lot of social anxiety and also leads to a lot of, of, of copycat culture. And this form of, yeah, the gold rush, this form of instantaneity, be it from the dopamine that you get from looking at notification or the randomized return, in the words of uh, Nirayal, Eyal, uh, that you get from, from looking at um, uh, a different picture on Instagram as you scroll. This, this culture of gratification and rewarding individuals is much more fluid and much more um, quick when it comes to looking at other people's artworks, when it comes to Looking at social media in general, when it comes to to researching artworks, and when it becomes when it comes to looking at um, works that sell, that's the that's the major difference. And then w- within within that domain, let's let's look at Keith Haring. This this is an artist who didn't have the same mm-hmm. traction through social media that artists do today, but the digital media in the form of showcasing his auction results or H&M using his shoes through whatever, whatever form of, of trademarking and, and copyright that was involved there. And the other tchotchkes that are being sold as part of his persona cemented his, his legacy within AIDS culture in, in the 1980s and cemented his ability to become an activist artist. Now, obviously she was very well known within his own lifetime, People would see the subway drawings. People would, but people weren't paying like hundred grand for something that was ripped off of a subway poster, or, or or you know half a million or whatever it is. People were appreciating the work in 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 being part of the physical experience of looking at the work because they didn't have the internet, so they couldn't look at the work online. Then his leg, his legacy. We use the word canon in, in art history. If you become part of the canon, it's a it's an academic. Um, jargoned word that means you're a very significant artist whose work has stood the test of time. He became part of the canon as a result of not only the auction results, but the historical narrative that was created for his personality, for his cult of personality that was made through, through, um, through the online platform. Online platforms that proliferated his career, his materials, the, the associated products that were sold alongside his artworks, which a lot of which were not being sold during his lifetime. That said, there, there are other artists who we could consider activist artists who are anonymous and worth mentioning. The group that comes to mind for me is Guerrilla Girls. And Guerrilla Girls were known for exploiting the disproportionate number of male artists in museums, the way in which the scopophilic male gaze uh, subordinated women within film. Uh, Laura Mulvey was also a famous um. Female theorists who wrote about this as well. And they became and are activist artists because they're still they're still active, they became significant because instead of following a trend, they made a trend. They made commenting on patriarchal hegemony as the thing to do. Uh, that was their maxim as a group of artists, and they had help from Griselda Pollock, Linda Nochlin, these second wave feminist theorists who were able to support their practice in academia in the the halls of museums. But this was not an anonymous activist culture that was perpetuated by the internet because in in the 1980s, this wasn't the case. So their legacy is, is very different than other anonymous artists today because like what we've been speaking about, these anonymous artists are sort of jumping on a bandwagon you're creating a, a crypto ape project today you're two years too late you know and and there's been another famous uh, ape group they're called the gorilla girls and they've been doing it for 50 years right you have to understand your history a lot of people don't understand that so to circle back i, I think there, there are an anonymous artists who create trends and there are those who follow trends and we're working with uh a set of goalposts that keeps moving back as people keep following trends and that that you know I, I don't mean to sound negative but this is sort of like my no. uh, my 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 uh my take like i said i'm i'm a traditionalist but i also understand that there there can be um both pitfalls and uh accelerations in 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 contemporary art as a result of of digital media and i just wanted to to speak to those
0: yeah you kind of a radical without a traditionalist <laughs> You're taking one for the team. <laughs> I'll try. <laughs> I, I was just thinking as you were saying this, okay, so you have this anonymous collective, right, that is part of a countercultural movement that isn't anonymous, but by existing, like, by dint of relying on traditional media, right, outside of the popular consciousness. And, you know, if you step, as soon as you step away from the big figures, you have a lot of people working essentially, anonymously, not intentionally, just obscurity. Right. Do you think there was, is, will be any kind of a maybe a symbiotic relationship between anonymous and very named artists?
1: The legacy of the artists is, even if they're anonymous, is perpetuated by various market forces or by um, accompanying artists. If, if you look at the Gorilla Girls and then Juxtapose their practice with Jenny Holzer or Barbara Kruger; these are all mm-hmm. 1980s conceptual text-based political artists. And the the difference is that the Guerrilla Girls, because they were anonymous, it was more difficult to perpetuate their market. Right, their market couldn't be created in the same way as as, as Banksy, as an example of another anonymous artist, because they didn't necessarily have the anonymous uh, agents uh, or or people who are pushing them to make works, whereas because Barbara is not anonymous, she can work with she can she can work with blue chip galleries and have a backing for her work, which has a less limited um, a less limited range. The gallery has the comfort of working with her specifically. They have the comfort of working with her from a face to face basis and if you have that that personality and if you have that connection and the spark with the artist then the capacity to uh accelerate their career is there whereas gorilla, gorilla girls amazing important group you don't you don't see their stuff clearing six figures at auction you don't see much material online because the majority of their material actually isn't even um, market oriented whereas other quote unquote, political artists are having to make works that that cater to the whims of the market. I'm not saying Kruger is one of those Kruger can do whatever she wants at mm-hmm. this point. Um, it's, 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 um, it's just that, that they're dealing with a different playbook, the anonymous artist is dealing with the playbook where they uh, unfortunately can't get the support of the galleries because they're faceless. And that makes their work more difficult to circulate in the traditional art world. And this plays back nicely into the first point that we made in this conversation, which is that there's a reason that only Banksy and a very small group of contemporary artists choose anonymity because operationally it makes their career uh, harder to, to, to work with, harder to maneuver, harder to, makes it harder to bring works to the market because the market likes personality. And if you don't get personality, you don't necessarily get the leg up that the other artists who have big character, big personalities like Coons, Damien Hirst do, because they're using their own, their own face and posing to sell their work.
0: I want to bring us home with uh, something to invite a conflict of interest uh, for you, because we're talking about this new generation of artists and I don't know, call it selfishly. As part of that new generation right frame it uh, you could frame it even as, as as advice to me what would you tell an artist who's trying to make moves in this new environment with as much integrity as possible
1: if you're going to be a great artist, your art is going to speak for itself but when you're making that art, you don't want to you don't want to be too pushy when it comes to one aspect of your career. You don't want to be too pushy on Instagram. You don't want to be too pushy when it comes to meeting uh, different gallerists. You definitely don't want to be too pushy when it comes to bringing your work to auction, which usually is out of your control. So my advice is when you're making a name for yourself, because I think, as we've discussed, it's tough to be an anonymous artist in, uh, in today's day and age. Try not to rely too much on one aspect of your career or the other. Try not to rely too much on being a painter. Try not to rely too much on being a socialite, but try and create a holistic, well-rounded perspective that you can then use as a marketing chip. Because at the end of the day, you have to market yourself and let that calling card be part of you and let that guide your practice as opposed to uh, being too pushy in one direction
0: or the other. If if I were to summarize, it's like, uh, on the way to letting your art speak for itself, don't speak up too much for your art. (laughs) Don't speak too loudly for your art.
1: Yeah, don't speak too, I would say don't speak too aggressively (laughs) about your art. The, 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 The reality is that people like to discover you and how you make yourself discoverable will play into your success eventually.
0: Is there a world in which a present day artist could not use traditional social media, is there a way to be an artist you know to oversimplify it without instagram?
1: i mean, I have to give a shameless plug for for my business, which is which is artvisor, which is an app that we're launching i mean we're we're art advisors in a traditional sense in that we we work with a lot of people on a personal basis and have a network of collectors and galleries and auction houses. but our app is meant to help to extend our personal touch and also our ability as advisors to a wider audience. We as a business want to profit on being able to help other people discover great art. But I think that you can succeed as long as you're able to make something that is, this is going to sound like a terrible truism, but that can be appreciated by other people. And you you, you can do that whether or not you have uh, Instagram or not. But that said, you also have to be aware that a lot of people are using Instagram. A lot of people are using DeviantArt. A lot of people are using Behance.
0: That's yeah. a throwback. Yeah.
1: You, 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 if you're a graphic designer, if you're an anime artist, or if you're a fine artist, you are using a different um, a set of digital tools to promote yourself. And when you're finding your niche as an artist, and when you're carving your own path, you have to understand which digital tools are, are right for you, and then you you uh, you actually do have to use them. I think I'm kind of contradicting myself, but I think it's I think it's tough to be discovered unless you have um, a degree of of recognizability. Because even if you're not actively promoting your work on any of those platforms, like if we as our advisor promoting you, or if another person is promoting you, they're still using Instagram to promote your work. The art is the fire, but the gasoline that helps it spread is oftentimes going to be a specific digital product. And that's symptomatic of of our day and age. Whether or not we like it, it's it's part of the, uh, the digital reality that we find ourselves in.
0: This was Andrew Freeberg with our podcast, Who's That?, In our next episodes, we'll continue exploring the topics of anonymity, data privacy, and much more. Subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like our work, let us know. Leave a review and make sure you share it with your friends. Who's That is produced by Anon, the social network that shows creators, consumers, and everyone else online the bright side of anonymity, and Storm, a podcast production studio. We'll be back in two weeks. Thanks for listening. Save our podcast, leave your comments, and let the world know what you think. As for next time, don't call us. We'll call you.